Good morning. Thanks for the feedback, Mike. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, hopefully you do, um, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And we'll be looking today at uh, verses 25 through 30 in Philippians chapter 2. I'll give you a second to get there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Feel free to use that. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 25. This is Paul speaking. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Often we look to the Bible to tell us what to do, but this passage actually only has one section in verse 29 that really tells the church what to do, and that's how to receive someone. But how does that and the rest of the passage then, for that matter, inform us? Is there other ways to learn from passages of Scripture than something directly telling me to do something. As I was thinking about and studying this passage, I began asking myself some questions. Like, what use is this section of Scripture to me or to the church today? What does this passage of Scripture really have to offer us? How does it help me answer the questions I have about life as a Christian? And how does it help me understand God better or the church better? I thought about how easily we can read the scriptures and miss so much truth for one reason or another. And I was reminded what the Bible says about itself through what Paul said to Timothy as he encouraged him to continue in the study of God's word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Author and seminary professor Don Whitney said, if reading the Bible can be compared to cruising the width of a clear, sparkling lake in a motorboat, studying the Bible is like slowly crossing the same lake in a glass-bottom boat. The motorboat crossing provides an overview of the lake and a swift, passing view of its depths. The glass-bottom boat of study, however, takes you beneath the surface of Scripture for an unhurried look of clarity and detail that is normally missed 
by those who simply read the text. As author Jerry Bridges put it, reading gives us, gives us breadth, study gives us depth. So I hope today that we'll spend some time in a glass-bottom boat as we look at the scriptures and profit from a deeper understanding. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your perfect, inerrant, and infallible word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see the riches of every word and sentence and paragraph. Help us today to set aside the distractions, Lord, that pull at our attention and to see with clarity the truth of who you are and how you care for your church. Father, may we take from this passage truths about you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This message today is part two of my last sermon in Philippians, hence the title, A Shepherd's Heart, Part Two. It's on your uh, note card there if you're taking notes. Um, the Apostle Paul being the shepherd we're looking at and how his heart is inclined toward the church. That's why this letter is written, because Paul is concerned for the church in several areas and for several reasons, not the least of which is that he knows that they know that Epaphroditus was ill and that they would be very concerned for his welfare and his well-being. We saw in the previous text how he wanted to send Timothy to them to deal with all the issues that they were having and, and that they were facing as a church. Paul himself could not go since he's in prison in Rome, so he wanted to send the next best thing, and in his estimation, that was Timothy. And Paul said he had no one like Timothy who would be genuinely concerned for the church and the welfare. With the exception of Paul, Timothy's concern for the church was unlike anyone else. His concern was not for worldly things. Paul described him as being a spiritual son to him in the faith and of like mind. Timothy had a proven track record that the church well knew of, and, and Paul pointed that out. And Paul said he would send Timothy as soon as he found out how things were going to go with him, and that he would likely follow soon after, but he could not go himself yet. And he kept Timothy with him. Which brings us to the messenger, a man named Epaphroditus. This really is a glimpse into the thought process and heart of a shepherd and his concern for the sheep. Paul has wrestled through what to do uh, and how best to care for the church at a distance. And in our passage today, he lays out and executes his plan for how he will care for the church. In chapter 4 of Philippians, we see Paul thanking the church for partnering with him in giving and receiving and for sharing in his trouble. In fact, they did so more than any other church. In verse 18, he acknowledges receipt of their gift and the one who brought it. If you look over at chapter 4 in, in Philippians, at verse 18, he says to them, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus is a member of the Philippian church, sent as a messenger and minister to Paul. Not only as a bearer of gifts, at least partly financial in nature, but as their representative to stay and help Paul in the ministry, to help this shepherd that shepherded them into existence as a church. So Epaphroditus goes to Paul with word from the church, and this is how Paul knows they have certain struggles that they're dealing with, the fears and the anxieties they have because Paul is in prison, doubts about why there's persecution and suffering, problems with selfishness, division, and lack of humility. There, there are some of them that are grumbling and disputing with God about their circumstances, and they're dealing with doctrinal confusion. And then the quarreling of two prominent women within the church that Paul has to address later. The book of Philippians is Paul's letter of response back to them. Some of what is in this letter is Paul expressing his affection for the church, and some is Paul addressing their problems specifically. He decides Epaphroditus is the one to send back to them with this letter that we're reading today. As I said earlier, the decision to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi was not just a quick decision. This is something that Paul wrestled with, mainly because of how valuable Epaphroditus was to him in ministry. Look at verse 25 in chapter 2. It says, I have thought it necessary. This is after careful thought and consideration of sacrificing the usefulness of Epaphroditus personally and in the work of Christ for the sake of the church. Sending him back to them is what needed to be done. This was the only option. The circumstances called for him to be sent. And we'll talk more about those circumstances in a bit. It was, however, not an easy decision because of the character of the man, Epaphroditus. We don't really know much about this man, Epaphroditus. In fact, all we do know of him is right here in the book of Philippians, and his name is only mentioned twice in the whole letter. But that does not mean he is not significant in service to God. Epaphroditus was a common name at the time, and it means belonging to or favored by Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. We have no information about when Epaphroditus was converted, or anything else that would help us to know his role in the church at Philippi, or even the specific things he did for Paul in Rome. But Paul tells us about him through what he writes to the church about him. It is not a list of accomplishments, specific tasks completed, a number of people won to the Lord, a list of new churches started, or anything else that we might think is important. But what Paul gives them are titles for Epaphroditus that tell us about his character and commitment to Christ. Let's look again at verse 25 and see what he says. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul uses the word my in verse 25, as, as a possessive. This is personal 
and he's telling the church this is not just a list he made up off the top of his head. These are things that Epaphroditus is to Paul. These are facts, and the church needs to know that when they get this letter from the hands of Epaphroditus, that it came at a personal cost to Paul. But it's necessary for them. What does Paul say of him in verse 25? He is my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Those are not all he is. He is also from them, from the church, and he is something to them. Paul says he is your messenger and minister to my need. First, Paul says he's my brother. He's not his brother naturally, but spiritually. He's Paul's brother by virtue of the same rebirth through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers because they have the same heavenly father. Paul would not give him this title just because they were close or uh, because of a feeling. This is a fact of salvation, true of them and true of anyone here today who has been bought by the blood of Christ. Positionally, we are brothers and sisters in Christ through adoption. Into God's family, as Paul indicates in his letter to uh, the church in Ephesus. There, he's praising God for his great kindness and salvation. And he says in Ephesians 1.5, He, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When I was a kid, my dad was pastoring a church in the Bay Area where we lived. I remember there were several people that I would often hear my dad refer to as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And I always thought it was kind of strange that I had no understanding as a boy that this was actually a wonderful title as they pronounced to each other that they were in the family, that they had the same father. Now I understand that this is very biblical, and we should not think it's strange to refer to one another as brother or sister in Christ. It's a gift of God and a blessing, and Paul is associating himself with great affection to Epaphroditus in that way and declaring that the church should see him as such also. He also calls Epaphroditus his fellow worker. I don't think there's any doubt from Scripture that Paul himself was a worker for Christ, most importantly in the spreading of the gospel, but also in what we see him doing in his care for the church. And this is a two-way street. The church is doing the work of Christ in caring for Paul in his work for Christ, and Paul is also working for Christ in his care of the church, which is Christ, which, of which Christ is the head. We don't see anything from Paul that says exactly what Epaphroditus was doing from day to day. But again, Paul would not give this title to some slacker who was a burden to him and a disruption to the work of Christ. Paul wants the church to know that they sent him the right man. He was in the mix. This is a partnership that is close and affectionate. He was doing for Paul what Paul told the church back in chapter 1 that he wanted to hear they were doing for one another. 
you flip back in your Bibles to chapter 1 of Philippians, and let's look at verses 27 and 28 to be reminded. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That is who Epaphroditus was, a fellow worker. Not frightened in anything by their opponents, but standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side with Paul for the faith of the gospel. But I don't see what he's doing. There's no list of things that I can check off. It doesn't matter because it's not a list of things that's important. Paul said this is who he is. Make no mistake, the work of Christ is focused. It is built on the foundation of the word of God, which is the truth. Workers for Christ cannot go their own way. They are bound to Christ because they have been bought with a price. You and I learn, uh, you and I can learn from this that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to be fellow workers wherever God has placed us. And in that, I've never been to Greece where Paul and Timothy were from uh, in that region and at that time, but I don't have to go there to be a worker for Christ, and neither do you. But our work for Christ must be always rooted in the truth of the Word of God. What else does Paul say of Epaphroditus? He is my fellow soldier. To give Epaphroditus the title of fellow soldier indicates a couple of things. First, that the work of Christ involves battle. And second, Epaphroditus was no slouch. The battle that believers are involved in is not fought with swords and spears, but with the weapons that God has given. According to the Scripture, the fight is not against flesh and blood, but against this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is physically in custody. He has physically suffered for Christ at the hands of human beings. But ultimately, the battle is spiritual it's a battle for the truth and for the hearts and minds of people, and the weapons God gives His people are therefore spiritual weapons. He gives us truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, salvation, the Word of God, and prayer, as found in Ephesians chapter 6. As a fellow soldier, Epaphroditus is not only aware of his weapons, but was wielding them in battle along with Paul. Perhaps he was not in custody with Paul, but that was not the only front. And it's still not the only front. The battle takes place wherever the truth of God is fought for, and sometimes that front is even within the walls of the church. There are constant attacks on the truth that are spoken of in Scripture, and Paul may have been the foremost soldier in the fight for the truth. 
Most of his letters, including this one, deal with some form of battle being fought in the church over the truth. And these are battles that include great suffering. Again, this is to be expected in the lives of Christians. Paul tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus in 2 Timothy 2.3. It is not suffering because an atheist says they don't believe in God, but because someone who says they're a Christian is either believing or teaching something false, hence requiring battle. most often to protect God's people. Not battle to slay the person, but the lies being put forth. The goal is to bring out truth, trusting God to work in hearts as we open the word, which is our sword, but the battle must be fought. Charles Spurgeon said of being a Christian soldier, you cannot make an experienced Christian without trouble. You cannot make an old sailor on shore, nor make a good soldier without fighting. Here is that window of hope again, standing at the back of our experience. We look out of the window, and what God has done for us is a token of what God will do for us. Sometimes the battle is believers repenting of sin against one another and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. This has to be fought against our sin and tendency to hold grudges. Sometimes the battle is a fight for the truth that God determines what is sexually pure and not us and not the culture that lies and says it's whatever makes us feel good or whatever we determine it is. The soldiering will always be done in battle over the truth in some fashion. Church, the truth is what God says it is in His Word. And we have that foundation. To be a fellow soldier is not just for Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, but for all Christians. The question is, do we even know there's a battle? The fight for the faith is for the believer But praise God that he has already won the victory. Paul also said Epaphroditus was your messenger, meaning the church, your messenger, uh, and your minister to my need. He acknowledged that Epaphroditus was something to them as well, and he wanted them to know that he accomplished what they sent him to do. He was fulfilling his responsibility as their representative. We talked about the fact that Epaphroditus was the one who brought the message from the church to Paul and also the gifts that they sent. But Epaphroditus was not just a messenger, as we've seen. He ministered to Paul as a brother. And by his working and soldiering, he was vital to Paul in the work of Christ. But Paul thought it more necessary to send him back. Why? Epaphroditus had been ill, so ill, in fact, that he was near death. Look at verses 26 and 27. For he has been 
longing for you all, this is Epaphroditus, longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul found it necessary to send him back because Epaphroditus longed for them. And this is not just homesickness, but something deeper, as brought out in the next part of the verse, where we're told that Epaphroditus was distressed because they knew he had been ill. If you would turn back to Matthew chapter 26 in your Bible, Matthew chapter 26, I want to look at verses 36 through 39. And the word distressed in our text today comes from the same Greek word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said that he was troubled in this passage here that we'll read. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is deep anguish. Jesus was facing not only the physical torture of crucifixion, but the wrath of the Father for the sin of the world placed on Him as He became a curse for you and for me. It caused Him great distress. And this is the word used to describe what Epaphroditus feels because he knows the church is suffering over his illness and not knowing his fate. This gives us a good picture of the love between these brothers and sisters in Christ, and it is not lost on Paul. It is why Paul was willing to sacrifice the help of his fellow worker and soldier. It was more necessary for the church that they have him back. And Paul explains to them the severity of the illness was that he, was, he almost died from whatever it was. We don't know what the illness was, but it should be sufficient to know that he was near death for a time, and Paul was sorrowful because of it. Then in the second part of verse 27 in our passage, Paul explains to the church what happened through the illness. He says, But God had mercy on him. This shows how Paul viewed the circumstances of Epaphroditus' illness. We have no text telling us that Paul or anyone else tried to heal Epaphroditus and, and couldn't heal him because they didn't have enough faith or something. We have no text telling us that Paul prayed or how much he prayed, but I don't doubt for a second that Paul prayed for Epaphroditus. The point is not could he or could he not heal him or 
How much, if at all, did Paul pray for him? And prayer is good. But the point here is that Paul wastes no ink in doing anything but exalting God's sovereignty over the illness. Paul knew that only God could heal Epaphroditus. And when God did heal him, Paul called it mercy. Not only mercy on Epaphroditus, but Paul says God had mercy on him as well. Had Epaphroditus died from his illness, would God have ceased to be merciful? Is God only to be viewed as merciful when he heals the sick person? May we never think such a thing. It is one thing for God to have mercy on any of us and prolong our earthly lives, but the ultimate mercy is that he would grant anyone everlasting life when all we have earned is death. God is to be worshipped and praised for his sovereignty in all of life. We would do well to learn from Job here. At the very first chapter of Job, God was proving to Satan that Job did not only trust and fear him because he gave him lots of wealth and possessions and, and lots of children. God allowed Satan to test Job. And so Job lost all his property and all his possessions and all ten of his children died in one day. Messenger after messenger after messenger came to him with the next news of great loss on this day. And they came before the previous messenger had even finished speaking, the scripture tells us. One after another, bomb after bomb dropped. The last message being that of the death of all of his children at one time. Not because he sinned, but because God determined it to be necessary for his purposes. In Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, we see Job's response. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Blessed be the name of the Lord was his response. Worship was his response. Can we say in our times of plenty and in our times of loss, blessed be the name of the Lord? Scripture tells us he's the father of mercies, and that his mercies are new every morning. Paul understood this about God firsthand, and in this situation, praised God for his mercy on both himself and Epaphroditus. And how did God have mercy on Paul in this situation? Paul explains it in verse 27, where he indicates God spared him sorrow two times over. Look at verse 27 again. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow 
upon sorrow. God had mercy on Paul in sparing him the loss of Epaphroditus to death. Now, the fact that Paul would have had sorrow at the death of his beloved brother does not indicate he would have found God to be unmerciful had the outcome been different. It is not wrong to be sorrowful at the loss of loved ones. Job was sorrowful at his great loss, but in the midst of it, he acknowledged God's sovereignty over everything and fell down in rightful worship of God. The fact that Paul would have had sorrow goes to the love that he had for his brother. Beyond that, we also see again a shepherd's heart for the church. This idea of sorrow upon sorrow is explained in the text. Would it have just been double sorrow because of losing his brother? I don't think so. I believe the first sorrow would be for the devastating loss of his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier. Both because of their close relationship and because of their work together for the gospel. The second sorrow would have been felt by Paul for the grief of the church over their own personal loss. Again, grief and sorrow are normal. And Paul would have felt deeply for the church, therefore, sorrow upon sorrow. This is why Paul found it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to them. They needed it for emotional and spiritual revival. Not only could they rejoice at the return of their brother, but they would be praising God for His mercy. Read verse 28 again. Paul says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. We have seen that Paul knew the church had information about Epaphroditus' illness, and he knew that is all they had. They had no way of knowing yet that he had been healed. So both Paul and Epaphroditus were feeling the anxiety over the worry of the church. That's what Epaphroditus was uh, distressed about. This is where it's hard for us to grasp sometimes because of our lifestyle and technology. Brace yourselves, young people. They had no cell phones, okay? They had no landlines, no post office, no Wi-Fi, no internet, no Facegram or Instabook. I know I got those wrong. That was just to embarrass my kids. But whatever all those things are called that we have today in social media, uh, they had no way of getting quick relief of their distress like we can. If we hear someone is ill, we can find out almost instantly how they're doing by making a phone call or checking a feed of some sort. Some of you know what that means. I don't. Not to mention the fact that we can get to them physically faster. Car or plane makes it possible to get almost anywhere in the world within a day. But not so in Paul's time. So instead of sending word by another messenger, he does even better and sends the man himself with this letter of explanation. And does the fact that Paul had some anxiety 
over the church, erase what he says later in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, where he says, do not be anxious about anything. Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 28, he says about himself, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Which one of us can say we're never anxious about anything? The point of the passage is not that if you ever have anxiety, you've totally blown it as a Christian. No, the point is that for the Christian, when anxiety comes, and it will, it will only be relieved by knowing God. It is that we should have no sustained anxiety. No anxiety without remedy. And that is what the rest of the, the passage in chapter 4 says. If you'll look there in chapter 4, Philippians, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need our hearts and our minds guarded in Christ Jesus because our hearts and our minds will take us to places where the believer shouldn't go and has no need to go. We may get anxious, but by humble prayer and giving thanks to God, we let God hear our plea. And what does He do? His peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, His peace comes with knowledge of the truth about who He is and about our hope in Jesus Christ as Savior. The Lord is at hand. The last two verses are the verses where Paul instructs the church how to receive Epaphroditus. It's interesting that he has to tell them how to welcome him back. If they love him, won't that be automatic? Look at verses 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I don't think this is really about them having a problem knowing how to receive Epaphroditus. I'm sure you've all seen at least one of those documentaries or perhaps a YouTube video showing a soldier returning from battle to their loved ones. They've been gone a long time. Sometimes they surprise them at school or at work. Or I'm sure you've seen these. The emotions overwhelm them. The joy is evident on their faces and in their embrace. You don't have to tell someone how to respond to that loved one. The point here is that they need to be reminded that this is all God's doing. That you have even one more moment with them as a gift of God every day. The joy that they have to be reminded to have belongs to the Lord. 
Paul says, receive him in the Lord with all joy. You don't have to be told to be joyful at the return of your loved one, but sometimes we have to be reminded that I need to rejoice in the Lord at this. This is God's doing. Praise God. How easily we neglect to give praise and worship to our God for His mercies and good gifts. Our joy should always be in the Lord. He also says to honor such men, hold them in high regard who risk their lives for the truth. Men and women who are workers, soldiers, risking their lives, not just in the physical sense, but in reputation, in status, in employment, both outside and inside the church. These are not just the folks who are willing to go to a dangerous foreign country, but sometimes the dangerous pew in front or behind you. Not to diminish the work of foreign missions. The work of Christ is missions, foreign and domestic. It is evangelism. But it's not just for the missionary or the evangelist, and it does not only take place in those places. In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon said of the state of the church, a church should be a camp of soldiers, not an hospital of invalids. But there is exceedingly much difference between what ought be and what is, and consequently many of God's people are in so sad a state that the very fittest prayer for them is for revival. The work of Christ is for all Christians. We should exhort one another to study God's truth and pray that God would make us complete and equipped for every good work, prepared for the battle that is the Christian life. Pray for a renewed love of Scripture and for the church. Paul has shown here his heart for the church in seeing their need and giving back to them that which they gave him in Epaphroditus. It was difficult, but necessary for all of them, himself included. When Paul said at the end of verse 30 that Epaphroditus risked his life while completing what was lacking in their service to him, he was not saying they had some obligation, some known obligation that, that he failed to meet or that they failed to meet. This was really about the fact that until they sent Epaphroditus with, with the gifts and as a messenger, they had no opportunity to send the gift. He said as much in, in chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So at the opportunity, they sent Epaphroditus, and Paul is thankful, and he rejoices in that. So I'm struck by what we can learn from this passage today. Beyond just a story about a church from a couple thousand years ago, the heart of a shepherd for the church we can learn about, the sovereignty of God we can learn about, we can be reminded of the mercy of God in this passage. The love of brothers and sisters in Christ is evident in this passage. The encouragement to be fellow workers and fellow soldiers in the work of Christ is in this passage. 
So does this passage have relevance for us? Absolutely. Can we learn more in this passage than just that one instruction at the end of verse 29? Absolutely. The depth of love between believers is evident throughout the scriptures. Is it evident in your life? It is good that we should hear this today, and we should hear it every day, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can learn much from passages like this if we spend the time and, and look and see the character of Christians and be reminded that the Christian life is not just coming and sitting in a pew on Sunday, but that it's a lifelong battle. It's a battle for the truth of God. Wherever that impacts your life, however that is coming against you, and the only way to combat it is with the Word of God and the truth. Doing the work of Christ is not just going to the foreign mission field. That's good, and that's not to diminish that. But it's also going and visiting your brother and sister in the hospital. It's also making meals for your brothers and sisters who have lost loved ones. It's reconciling with brothers and sisters. Getting rid of bitterness and unforgiveness. That's the work of Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. May your word abide in us, Lord. Fathers, we've read this passage today and we've seen the character of Epaphroditus as a fellow worker and soldier, as a brother, as a messenger and a minister to the needs of Paul. Father, we can learn from that how to care for one another. Maybe not with specific details, Father, but we know that we must care for one another. I pray, Father, we would not neglect that. Lord, help us to have a heart for the church, as Paul did. Thank you, Father, for salvation found in Christ alone. We thank you that that unites us as brothers and sisters. And Father, for the one here today who has not yet known that fellowship, Father, would you convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior, that they may repent and come to faith in Christ for their salvation. And we thank you for the body of believers. May we glorify you in all that we do, and say, and Lord, help us to have right thinking in hardship. Lord, help us to see your mercies every day. Thank you, Father, for your great, 
grace and mercy. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.